Hello and welcome to another episode of Technical Roundup brought to you by FTX. Today, Donald and I are speaking to Jake Chavinsky, who is the GC at Compound Labs. That's general counsel, for those unaware. We'll be talking a lot about regulatory issues, crypto law, some infrastructure bill topics, though not too many. Poor Jake has already spent much of his life, it seems like, or probably feels like, on that, but plenty to cover. Jake, thank you for making the time to join us in what must have been an absolutely exhausting uh, month. And how are you? Uh, well, thank you guys. It's it's a pleasure to be here, a longtime listener. So really happy to chat with you guys. Uh, it's going well. It's it's definitely the end of a few crazy weeks, which maybe we'll touch on a bit about this whole infrastructure bill saga. But otherwise, can't complain too much. Things are good. That's good to hear. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, many of whom maybe are just more on the trading side of things, I think we'd benefit from a brief intro on how who you are and how you came to be general counsel at a very well-known DeFi protocol. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I said, uh, you know, Jake Trevinsky, I'm general counsel at Compound Labs. We are an open source software development company focused on the decentralized finance sector of the crypto industry. Uh, we're best known, of course, as the original developer of the Compound Protocol, which is a protocol on the Ethereum blockchain for uh, supplying and borrowing digital assets at interest rates that are set by algorithm. Um, in addition to that, I also serve as the co-chair of the DeFi Working Group for the Blockchain Association, which is the primary US trade association for US crypto companies in Washington, DC, which where, is where I'm based. Um, I should start all of this by saying, although I am a lawyer, I am not your lawyer, and I don't represent anyone in the audience. So nothing I say here is intended as legal advice. Uh, also, although I work at Compound, I'm not here to represent Compound. I'm just here to share my own um, personal thoughts and observations. And then I guess just as a really quick background, um, I joined Compound in May of 2019 in the depths of the bear market. I had gotten into Bitcoin as sort of a personal passion around 2017, right, as, as the bull market was really heating up. I saw an article about the price going up. It's sort of the same way that a lot of people end up getting interested in crypto. I thought, what is this Bitcoin thing? And I started learning more about it and I just fell down the rabbit hole. And at the time was working at a law firm uh, focused on uh, disputes and investigations, primarily involving fraud or misconduct, and most of them also with an international angle to them. So naturally, coming out of the 2017 ICO bubble, what that meant was I did a lot of work around ICOs, uh, sort of cleaning up the mess of the ICO bubble, uh, representing issuers who were getting subpoenas from the SEC or from the CFTC or other uh, you know, crypto market participants getting inquiries from the Department of Justice or the FBI or others. And after doing that for a while, I got to the point where I felt like, you know, I am a true believer in the future of this technology and this industry. And instead of cleaning up this mess, I'd really rather join the industry full time and try to help build something the right way. And that's what led me to Compound. So that's what I've been working on for, uh, for over two years now. Yeah, that's an awesome intro. It's always interesting to hear from people uh, who, like myself, really got involved in 2017, be it the first half or the second half, because usually they end up in much in a very un, you know unexpected place, given they just joined as a result of a price article or just the bull market generally. I think crypto has this 
a very infectious staying power where even if you join for the quote unquote wrong reasons or for price reasons or speculation, it really has a way of um, taking over large swathes of your life, usually for the better, uh, sometimes for the worse. That's, that's a really cool kind of origin story. That said, you know, with, with, com with what you're doing right now, um, it might be helpful to kind of, what does a normal day look like um, as a GC for a really well-known protocol? Like, do you have a, what's your baseline type of work that you would do? That's it's a tough question because, uh, you know, working in crypto, there really isn't a normal day for any of us. I'm sure that's true <laughs> for you guys as, as much as it is uh, for us. But I guess I could put my work into a few different categories. A lot of what I've done uh, also has changed as time has gone on. So, you know, when I first joined the company, I was the first lawyer to join. I was employee number nine. Um, and the first thing that I did was just to get my arms around the whole concept of what does it mean to have a decentralized protocol that allows users to transact in complex ways beyond just sending and receiving value? What are all of the potential legal and regulatory issues around that type of activity and that type of um, system living on a public blockchain. So a lot of my work then was just sort of starting to understand what the policy implications were and how the various different regulatory frameworks would apply to the work that we had done. Moving forward, a lot of my work shifted toward designing the compound governance token. Um, you know, the, the premise behind that really was we wanted the protocol to be as decentralized as possible. And the only element of the protocol at that time when I joined that wasn't fully decentralized was our control of an admin key that allowed us to change certain parameters in the protocol. And we wanted for the community of users who were using the protocol to be the ones uh, you know, in that power of the administrator rather than us. So a lot of my work then was around uh, how do we design a governance token that complies with securities laws and other regulatory frameworks. Um, and now I, I think my work has shifted a lot more toward two different um, categories of work. One is compound treasury, which is a proprietary financial product that we are now offering built on top of the compound protocol. So it looks a lot more like a typical fintech company offering an ordinary financial product, but behind the scenes, the back end for how that product works is DeFi. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to navigate all of the different regulations and legal considerations around offering a product like that. And then the second category, which is, as you mentioned, what has felt like every waking minute of my life and probably every sleeping minute too for the last few weeks is working on policy here in the US. You know, we all know that uh, governments around the world and especially the US government have really caught on to the rise of crypto in geopolitical importance around the world. And we're starting to get a whole lot of, of really interesting and good questions, but also tough questions about what the future of DeFi should look like, how it plays along with regulations, and what the best policy is moving forward. So I've spent a lot of my time working on those policy issues lately. Yeah, lately there have been plenty of uh, catalysts from the you know from the legislative branch uh, to make your life busy. And one of them was, of course, this kind of omnibus infrastructure bill, uh, which had, as my understanding goes, a provision which would affect crypto in a, in a very broad sense. And I think the specific technical um, 
issue there was the definition of broker that was used when it came to kind of tax reporting in digital assets. Uh, and it was just like an incomprehensibly broad um, definition where, you know, developers and miners and all these other parties to the crypto ecosystem, uh, it would be basically impossible for them to comply with the definition provided by legislation. Then we had all sorts of, you know, amendments and compromises and consent, Alabama, you know, it's quite a crazy timeline. Uh, when it comes to the infrastructure bill, you know, not to bog you down on um, the procedural propriety side of things, we'll be sure to link uh, the piece you did with Nathaniel uh, earlier today, which goes literally blow by blow, uh, almost feels like second by second. Excellent piece. Our audience should um, definitely catch up with that. But more broadly, um, where are we now slash what's the outcome of that whole saga for someone who, let's say, just fell off or lost interest halfway through? Sure. So yeah, and for anyone who does want an hour-long blow-by-blow of the whole story, I recorded that with Nathaniel Whittemore for uh, for the breakdown for CoinDesk, so check that out. But let's skip all that and just get to sort of where we are now. So the Senate has passed an infrastructure bill that has a provision, as you said, expanding the definition of a broker under the U.S. tax code. The definition of a broker that went into the law is, and I'm just looking at it here so I can give you the exact language. Uh, the definition is, quote, any person who, for consideration, is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person, end quote. And for the non-lawyers in the audience, I mean, that's, that's a pretty uh, dense sentence to try to understand, and I will admit that, that even I don't really have a sense of who that language actually applies to. And that's a big problem uh, moving forward, right? What we want from regulation is clarity. That really is all the industry has ever asked for, is clarity of, of what the regulations are and how we can comply. The problem with this language is if you just look uh, at a literal reading of the of the words of the definition, it seems like it could capture basically everyone in crypto at, at every level of the of the stack, right? It could potentially capture miners and validators and and stakers in a proof of stake system. In theory, it could capture wallet providers or DeFi interface providers or um, you know, other folks who are building software that allows people to transact with DeFi protocols or with public blockchains. It also, in theory, could capture users of DeFi protocols, right? If you match up this definition with, for example, a decentralized exchange protocol liquidity provider, it seems like it might apply. And the issue there is if the rule applies to a particular person, and when I say person, what the law means by that is basically any individual or company of any kind, then that person have to, has to file uh, tax reports, both with the IRS and also with their so-called customers. The problem is most of the market participants I was just describing, miners and validators and stakers and liquidity providers and interface providers, et cetera, don't have customers. They do not know who the users are, who, for example, in the case of a miner, uh, the user for whom they are including a transaction in a block. Um, and the problem there is it is fundamentally impossible for those persons 
to comply with the requirements because they don't know who it is that they should provide a tax form to. And they don't have the name and address and social security number and birth date and all this other KYC information that the government wants, uh, wants them to report. So that's sort of where we're stuck right now, arguing with government about how broad this rule is. Uh, where we're going next is to a fight in the House of Representatives. The House still has to pass this bill. There might be an opportunity for an amendment there. I'm not particularly optimistic about that just because of the broader politics around the bill. We, we think that there may be no opportunity for further amendments, and this is the, the law that we're gonna be stuck with. And what that means is for the next couple of years, we're likely to be stuck arguing with the Treasury Department about their interpretation of the rule, right? Trying to argue that this rule should only apply to the persons who can actually follow the obligation that's imposed by it. And that means the centralized exchanges and the custodians and the other businesses that do have customers that have a direct legal relationship with those customers such that they can collect the information they need in order to do this reporting. So it's, it's, it's been quite a saga already, but unfortunately this is uh, it's gonna go on for an, another couple years at least, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's, it always takes a long, long time, right? But uh, the, the one question that I always have is, do you think that's on purpose? Like, do you think it was as ambiguous to kind of do include like crypto and all the stuff that we kind of do? Or do you think it's just by chance and it just like happened and now we have to kind of go through the whole thing? So not only do I think that it's intentional, I know that it's intentional because the Biden administration has come out, I think even in a Politico article this morning, basically defending the provision as drafted and saying the main benefit of it is that it gives the Treasury Department broad authority to construe it however they think is best. And, and indeed, that's what we were hearing as we were trying to negotiate this language uh, throughout the last few weeks was the reason that it was so broad is because it's up to the Treasury Department in rulemaking to decide who it should capture. And both Congress and the administration didn't want to handcuff Treasury. So that was a big part of this dispute. I, I wouldn't say that we know that Treasury wants to capture all of these DeFi market participants or miners or software developers. They say that they don't. I just find it difficult to trust them in this circumstance, given that our request was, look, if you don't want this rule to apply to miners, let's just change the language of the rule so it clearly doesn't apply to miners. And that didn't happen. So I think that's, uh, that at least gives us some reason to be concerned about how this will be interpreted going forward. That makes all sense. In general, do you, but if that's the case, right, you could argue it could be because there's just a lack of understanding and you could argue that it's kind of a hostile kind of stance. Do you think it's one or the other or both or what's, what's your view on that? I think it's both. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to say the government and then ascribe a particular intent to it as one entity, but obviously that's not how the U.S. government operates. There are so many different stakeholders with different incentives, with different levels of understanding, with, you know, differing levels of either support for innovation in crypto or opposition to the development of, of crypto economic systems, that it's just really hard to say that there is one intent among all of them. I think that the problem is where this will end up 
is in the hands of the Treasury Department. And if you consider who historically has been the most uh, hostile toward the industry, it has been the Treasury Department. And specifically, it has been um, the Treasury Department's desire to increase the amount of surveillance that they conduct over the crypto ecosystem. And also, I think what they really want to do is re-intermediate as much of crypto as possible because, and I think this is understandable, they don't like the idea of a financial system that they cannot surveil and censor. And so they're trying to find out through regulation how they can take back more control of this system before it gets out of hand. And I think that's, look, that is the fight that we are all in just by being in crypto. That, that sort of is the challenge that crypto poses to government and to the anti-money laundering regime that we've had for the last 50 years at least. Um, so I think that's just a, a battle that we're gonna have to have. Do you think like that has kind of good prospects for like us as like crypto people? Or do you think it's gonna be like an uphill battle and it's gonna be really, really difficult? Because like, it's obvious that there's gonna be, and I mean, I'm really thankful for people that are much smarter than me that kind of understand all of this, that say, okay, this is not okay. We're gonna have to fight it. But like, do you think that there's actually like a good chance of winning that fight? Or do you think um, it's gonna be really, really difficult and we'll have to wait and see? Uh, well, I think, first of all, it depends what you care about, right? I think if you're only a trader and you really only care about what the price is going to do, it's very hard for me to say because there is this theory that the more regulation we have, the more comfortable institutions will be interacting with these systems, the more comfortable they'll be holding Bitcoin or Ether or some other asset. So we should just accept as much regulation as we can. And who really cares about all of this financial freedom and decentralized money stuff, it would be better if we if we just uh, accepted this regulation so that number can go up. That, that's not my view, although I, I can't say necessarily that it's right or wrong. I think that if you're in crypto because you want to see the development of a decentralized financial system that anyone anywhere can access, no matter who they are, no matter what their background is, and they don't have to ask permission, then I do think that that is going to be an uphill battle. It already is, and it always has been. It's just that until recently, most of what we were hearing from global regulators was just talk. And now that crypto really is on the geopolitical stage, right? Things like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, or just the size of the markets, and the size of decentralized exchange protocols, right? The, the rise of people being able to swap assets, not through one of these centralized intermediaries that can freeze assets whenever the government tells them to. Uh, that I think is why we're starting to see those strong words now turn into actual proposals in legislation uh, and also in guidance and recommendations around the world. You know, I'm, I'm describing this primarily from the U.S. perspective because that's where I am, but this is not a U.S.-only phenomenon. We're seeing the same thing from the FATF, which is an international standard-setting body for anti-money laundering regulation. We're seeing it in the EU with the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, MICA, uh, we're seeing it all over the world. So yeah, I, I think that this is, um, it's its going to get worse before it gets better, so to speak, in terms of the, the regulatory pressure that we're going to see from regulators around the world.
No, thank you. That's a very useful kind of framework to have in the back of our minds. And I very much agree. It does seem like the language was uh, deliberately broad and it was no political secret. The Treasury was kind of whipping up support for that broad language. Uh, to me, that's at least some sort of signal of an interest in, as you mentioned, regulating crypto beyond just tax collection. That was just like a convenient avenue for the purposes of facilitating the infrastructure bill. And yeah, I guess the one way to frame it is regulatory clarity, you know, at the price of intermediation, financial surveillance, and all the other uh, bells and whistles that come with it. Um, I, I, th I think that's a great bit of perspective. And again, we will leave the uh, link to the full infrastructure saga breakdown as it's still continuing. Um, that wonderful conversation you had uh, will be, uh, people should definitely, if you're interested, if those interested in procedure, that's that's definitely the piece to listen to. I do want to move away from uh, the infrastructure bill just because there's so much that we can potentially discuss when it comes to crypto regs. Um, I think setting a kind of framework may be quite helpful before we dive into specifics. So Stephen Paley is like a really great follow on Twitter. And one thing which he's, um, you know, satirizes from time to time is the idea of crypto law or crypto lawyers. Uh, and I guess this sort of raises the question, Two, in two parts. One, is there such a thing as crypto law slash crypto lawyers? But the second one, which I think is implicit in the first one, uh, are existing legal frameworks and tests, especially those kind of governing securities, fit for purpose? Um, it just seems like a lot of the time it's a matter of uh, when you, you know non-lawyers consider crypto legislation, it's this idea that you need to build it from ground zero to cater to this new financial system. But at least in, in many cases, uh, it's a matter of seeing how applicable and well, how to apply existing regulations to crypto. I know that's a lot there, but any kind of riff or freestyle on crypto law and crypto lawyers would be really good for some context. Right, for sure. Uh, and Stephen's a great guy. You know, he's also in DC and we've um, we've met up, uh, well, only once, but we, we should probably get drinks too. So if you're listening, Pally, let's get together. But uh, look, I, I share his... Um, sort of humorous take on the idea of a crypto lawyer. I, it's kind of like calling yourself an internet lawyer in the 1990s, right? But if you just give it some time, every single lawyer became an internet lawyer because every single lawyer was using the internet and was dealing with disputes or transactions that in some way involved the internet. So I think we're going to get to a point uh, you know, I don't know how far away that is, five years, 10 years, maybe longer, where the concept of a quote unquote crypto lawyer is, is just as silly as calling someone an internet lawyer now. I think the reason why that term gets thrown around or the concept of, of so-called crypto law gets thrown around now is more because there are just so few lawyers who are really deeply engaged in trying to figure out how does this new technology fit into existing legal and regulatory frameworks. And I think that there are two extremes in views on that question. One, which is maybe what Pally um, would be closer to, is there's nothing new under the sun, right? New technology is not relevant. Laws are designed to be technology neutral. There is no reason why we should need new laws to address new technology any more than we have in the past. The other view is this is a fundamentally different kind of activity 
regulations in particular are designed to address how people carry out certain types of activities, financial activities particularly, based on the huge number of different financial regulations around the world. And because this is a fundamentally new way for humans to interact, we need new laws across the board to try to address all of the unique issues. And that means benefits and risks that are posed by this new system. I think um, probably I fall somewhere in between as I'm guessing is sort of like the healthy perspective whenever you have a spectrum of two extremes. I think that a lot of what happens in crypto is very similar to traditional finance. I think that in many cases, the risks are the same and therefore the rules should be the same. I think there are some examples where the technology really does in a fundamental way change the underlying policy considerations of the laws or regulations that we've been dealing with before. Uh, and we do really need to, to develop new frameworks in order to address them. Uh, it just depends on which framework you're looking at. And this is the other thing I think a lot of people who you know, are not lawyers or are not really deep on crypto regulatory issues uh, miss. And it's similar to, the, to this issue of talking about the quote unquote government as if it's one entity. We can't really talk about regulation as just one concept. There are many different frameworks uh, that deal with different issues within financial markets. The securities laws are one very important set of rules and regulations, but they're not the only one. And they have very different goals and mechanisms to achieve those goals than the commodities laws, which are also very different from the anti-money laundering laws, which are very different from the lending laws, and on and on and on. So I think when we when we talk about you know, do we need new regulations? Does crypto fit within these existing frameworks or not? You have to really drill down into the question of what is the regulatory framework you're talking about? What is the risk that the framework is trying to address? Does that risk exist in crypto? How? And then how do you address it? Which I know is more nuanced um, than, uh, than a lot of people give it credit for. No, I think that's, that's an excellent answer. And it's a great follow up to, you know, there's no such thing per se as the government. And then that has its own subcategories of competing interests. And the same applying to regulation, regulatory bodies. Obviously, there is no easy answer here. Um, but no, having that having that uh, sense of like that framework to employ is really helpful, both for me and our audience, I'm sure. Uh, when, when it comes to new tech, uh, do you have any, do you think there are any specific uh, or even semi-specific examples where existing rules are, are really quite stretched just as a as a product of the technology we're dealing with like i know back in the day uh, airdrops and forks were kind of really tricky from a tax perspective uh, these sort of these sort of idiosyncrasies creep up from time to time uh, in crypto do you have any in recent memory where you think right this is not as straightforward as it may look um well, there are so many, it's hard to pick. I think, um, well, let me give you just one example uh, from the commodities laws space. And, and part of this um, is at the top of my mind because of remarks that were made recently by uh, one of the commissioners of the CFTC, Dan Berkovitz, who also went on a great podcast with one of his fellow commissioners, Brian Quintens, that was uh, on Unchained with Laura Shin, if anyone wants to you know, dig really deep into how the commodities laws apply to crypto. But basically, Commissioner Berkowitz gave a speech where, where essentially he said he does not think 
that DeFi has benefits over the traditional financial system. His point more or less was the intermediaries that we rely on in traditional finance are a net positive, right? When something goes wrong, they're there to try to resolve the issue. We can use them to get insight into what the transactions are that market participants are engaging in, right? The concept of decentralizing that type of financial activity, the trading of derivatives instruments, Commissioner Berkowitz says, is simply the wrong idea. And then he went on to say, even if it was the right idea, there's no way that derivatives in DeFi are legal under the Commodity Exchange Act. And I think that, um, look, I think that Commissioner Berkowitz is approaching this in good faith. And I think that he has, you know, honestly held opinions about this. And I think that there is some validity to, to some of what he says. But I think that this is a case where the regulation, the Commodity Exchange Act, is designed to achieve an objective that is only necessary in the traditional financial system, which is to make sure that these derivatives, which are viewed as weapons of mass financial destruction, right? This was the cause of the global financial crisis, the lack of insight into credit default swaps and other uh, you know, esoteric and exotic derivatives that were trading off exchanges in 2007, uh, that, you know, in traditional finance, you needed to say all of these derivatives must trade through centralized exchanges controlled by intermediaries so that we can manage this systemic risk. And the thing is, when you consider a DeFi protocol that allows the trading of similar instruments, there's just no reason to require an intermediary because you can see all of the transactions on chain, right? You can get all of the benefits that the regulation delivers in the traditional context simply through the engineering solution of a public blockchain and peer-to-peer -peer transactions in a decentralized derivatives protocol. So I'm not sure if, that, if that's really a good answer to your question, but it's just an, an example for me where the regulation is seeking to achieve an objective that that has been rendered moot by the technology that we've developed. No, I think that's a that's a perfect example of the type of thing uh, I was looking for. You know, even with that specific example, when it comes to decentralized derivatives and and that apparent friction between trying to fix a problem that doesn't apply. Um, what's what's the kind of solution there? Is it is it a case of making an exception? Uh, from like a policy or advocacy point of view that, you know, the same issues don't plague decentralized derivatives, therefore, you know, the same rules don't need to apply because the same risks aren't there. Uh, or is it, you know, how do you get, get around that? Do you think it's a case of uh, just lobbying for better understanding and gaining exceptions and exclusions? Or is there some other um, advocacy or policy mechanism uh, which can uh, get, get us to pass the finish line there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. So again, it depends on what regulatory framework you're dealing with. To, to use this example, um, I hate to say, look, it's and I, and I don't mean this as legal advice or a legal conclusion, it is pretty hard to take issue with Commissioner Berkowitz's understanding of the Commodity Exchange Act. The, the, exchange, the Commodity Exchange Act basically does say that if you want to trade a swap or an option or a future or another derivative, you must do that on an exchange 
period, end of story, with some exceptions, such as if you're an eligible contract participant, which just means you have a whole lot of money, then maybe you're allowed to, to get around the exchange trading requirement. So if that particular issue is one that is very hard to address simply through advocacy. We do need a change to the law, I think, before we will be able to really see uh, a flourishing DeFi derivatives market here in the US. And this is why you see all of the major derivatives protocols blocking US citizens from their front end interfaces. So then the question is, how do we achieve that? And I think, again, just you know, continuing with this example, the CFTC is actually a very forward thinking agency. You know, as US agencies go, I think the CFTC is one of the most um, understanding and, and one of the most excited about financial innovation. They have uh, a, a group there called Lab CFTC. The acting director is Jason Somansato. He was formerly senior counsel to Zero X, so he comes from industry. And so a lot of that is, is actually working with the CFTC to try to design, like you said, either an exception to the rule or some other regulatory framework that applies specifically to decentralized derivatives. Because the other thing about this is, although the systemic risk questions of can the CFTC monitor these transactions may be solved by just having all the transactions take place on a public blockchain, that's not the only risk posed by derivatives, right? There are other questions around uh, fraud and manipulation or about market efficiency or you know other issues that matter to the CFTC. And those might not just be natively addressed by the technology. So it's really hard to come into a statute and just put in a carve out that says, but none of this applies if it's happening on a blockchain, right? And that is something that industry tried to do with the securities laws early on. There's there an attempt called the Token Taxonomy Act that basically would have said, yeah, all of the securities laws, except for if the asset is trading on a blockchain, then none of this applies. And I think that's that's not the right approach, right? Well, we need to come up with, with more nuanced uh, solutions for these kinds of things. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But with regards to derivatives, right? Um, something that we've been seeing in Europe, I mean, I know because like in Germany, it's kind of been happening to me. There's been a big push kind of against derivatives in general, right? So we've seen like, for example, like tax laws get changed and you get like special, especially hard taxes on like if you trade trade derivatives or like they get straight up banned. I think that was kind of what happened uh, with with Ukraine, right? Um, where you kind of have problems like trading derivatives in general, or was that just crypto? Because in Germany, no, you're right, like, you're right. Yeah. So like we have like this kind of push globally against derivatives in general do you think like something like a change where it's like okay crypto is a special case is even probable there if like the entire world kind of has like this big anti um derivatives push because like what we've been seeing in the traditional markets is something crazy too right with gme amc like that kind of stuff being pushed up with with options and then a bunch of people kind of getting into that market and it feels like the governments want to like quote unquote protect their their citizens against that kind of stuff because i mean they're foreseeing like people to lose their hat i guess um do you think like it makes makes even sense that something like that would be probable that like crypto gets 
an exception because I mean, if if we have like this big push against derivatives, wouldn't make much sense, right? Right. I think uh, a broad exception doesn't make sense for exactly the reason that you said, right? Uh, the the government being able to monitor systemic risk, in other words, to see you know where all of the risks are in the system that could result in a mass liquidation event that could cost people money or could affect other parts of the economy, which is really what systemic risk is about, is only one of many things that matter to regulators. I think when it comes to derivatives specifically, the concern is, uh, and the view among some regulators is, investors, who, you know, retail investors anyway, just shouldn't have access to these things, right? This is when regulators talk about investor protection. And, you know, for, for anyone who's really interested in the subject, I, I definitely would recommend that podcast uh, with the, the two CFTC commissioners, because they go through the history of the derivatives markets, which only arose in, I think it was in the 19th century. And for the longest time, the derivatives markets were really just about uh, people who were producing and selling goods being able to hedge their risk. And, and here in the US, the commodities laws are still within the scope of the Senate Agriculture Committee, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I might have that wrong, but um, it is sort of an agricultural question, right? Going back to farmers who are growing wheat and you know don't know what the season is gonna look like and wanna hedge their risk because of that. The rise of financial derivatives really only happened in, I think it was in the 1970s. So it's still sort of a new concept. And the idea that you have mom and pop on Main Street, right, retail investors, uh, you know, trading 20x leverage on already massively volatile crypto assets, I think that there's a view among regulators that this is no better than gambling. And if gambling is going to be outlawed, then so should this be outlawed. I think you raise a really good point, though, about what's happening in the traditional equities markets, right? Why should crypto get this treatment when people can still download Robinhood and throw as much money as they want to on a far out of the money put on some stock where they're just going to lose all their money within a couple of days, right? I think we haven't really worked through those issues yet. Um, but I guess this is all to say, I completely agree with you that there are ways in which crypto is different and there are ways in which crypto is exactly the same as the as the markets that we've had for many years. Yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. I think there definitely is some sort of analogy there. But more broadly, when it comes to crypto centralized exchanges, uh, the trends have been like reasonably clear over the last two to four years. Um, the amount of business you can do without being KYC'd is becoming more incremental, sort of lower and lower. Um, you know, if you want to do any type of volume or withdrawals or access to certain products, you 100% have to be KYC'd now. Whereas, you know, back in the day on certain exchanges, you could do quite big numbers and just get your Bitcoin withdrawal. And uh, that was that. Uh, do you, what's your kind of, I suppose, big picture view uh, regarding the future of the centralized exchange landscape? Does it go beyond just the kind of leverage crackdown? Uh, and stricter KYC, which is more just falling in line with existing regulation? Uh, or is there, you know, what's on your radar when it comes to the centralized exchange landscape? And I, the reason I bring that up was, again, Poloniex got a 10 million slap on the wrist recently from the SEC. BitMEX settled, I think, um, some portion with the CFTC for 100 million. Uh, so it'd be great to get some perspective on how that part of the industry is changing. 
Yes. Um, well, just to answer your question directly, yes, uh, it is going to go beyond just the leverage trading and KYC issues. Those are the two biggest issues, however, and I think those are the ones that are, are worth focusing on the most. Just a, a couple of, um, of quick thoughts about that. I, I think you're right that historically, and particularly when all of crypto was really seen as a wild west, you had the dominant exchanges in crypto as non-US, often based in offshore tax havens with very little regulation, places like the Seychelles, if you want to think about BitMEX. Um, that was really the predominant force in crypto trading. And indeed, for a very long time, BitMEX, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think this is true, BitMEX was really driving price action in Bitcoin for quite a long time. And that was not an acceptable circumstance for US government, right? A big goal of government, and I do mean broadly speaking, I think all of the, the regulatory agencies, at least here in the US, were on the same page that these offshore exchanges that weren't doing KYC, but were still offering products to US citizens had to be dealt with. And I think that's what we saw with BitMEX. I think that we're going to see more of that with other non-US exchanges, right? We're sort of seeing signals of this now from Binance. I wouldn't be surprised, given all the inquiries into Tether, if there are also some questions asked about Bitfinex, which, as we know, had for a time um, been not doing the best job of excluding US citizens. And all of this really is, again, about um, number one, this, this issue of investor protection and trying to get a handle on manipulation in these markets or to try to crack down on fraud in the markets. And number two, about expanding government surveillance of people who have crypto assets. And right now, uh, regulators are pretty comfortable that as long as they can KYC the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, then they have enough insight into what's going on on-chain that they don't need to expand surveillance too far into the on-chain world, although they are trying, as we discussed earlier, uh, with respect to the to the infrastructure bill. Um, that, I think, is why we're seeing this, this crackdown on these non-US exchanges. I think that what's going to come next after that gets cleaned up, and by the way, the Bitcoin ETF, for anyone who cares about that, really depends in large part on cleaning up that part of the less regulated or unregulated crypto market, these, these non-US offshore exchanges. I think what comes next is US government is talking a lot now, and especially SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, about getting jurisdiction over spot markets in crypto. Right now, there is no regulator with jurisdiction over a spot market. So by spot market, I mean just the trading of digital assets themselves, not derivatives on top of those assets. And Chairman Gensler, who has been talking a lot lately about investor protection, thinks that there should be spot market regulation, just like there is regulation of equities markets where, where you know stocks trade. Um, this is also true, by the way, right now for spot markets and other commodities like gold. There is no regulator of spot gold markets. And the same thing to some degree with foreign exchange markets, although the CFTC did get some additional authority over those markets uh, in, in Dodd-Frank about 10 years ago. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out, though. There, there is, 
at least um, something of a turf war going on here in the U.S. between the SEC and the CFTC over who the right financial markets regulator is for those spot markets. It seems that Chairman Gensler thinks that regardless of whether uh, Bitcoin or Ether or some other digital asset is a security, nonetheless, the SEC is the right regulator for those exchanges. And um, to, I guess to, to leak a little bit of legal alpha, I, there's a rumor that's been going around, and I think is widespread enough now that it's worth sharing, that the SEC sent letters to all of the major centralized exchanges asking them to justify why all of the assets that they had listed were not securities. So there is, it seems, an effort by the SEC to try to expand its jurisdiction over those uh, those um, exchanges. But we also see some pushback from the CFTC, right? We saw a tweet from Commissioner Quintens right after uh, Chairman Gensler's speech last week saying, the CFTC is the regulator that has jurisdiction over commodities like crypto assets. So I think there's going to be a fight between those two agencies. I think that will probably bleed into Congress here with some proposals to uh, to to very explicitly grant jurisdiction to one or the other of those two agencies, or maybe some other new agency. Who knows? Um, so I, yes, I think uh, long story short. Uh, we're going to see a lot more in terms of regulation of, of the centralized exchanges uh, in the coming years. Always appreciate the legal alpha. And I agree, Gensler has been certainly speaking a lot and about crypto, no less. One of the things that caught my attention, I think this was uh, in his Aspen remarks, where and he, he said, and I quote, make no mistake, if a lending platform is offering securities, it also falls into SEC jurisdiction. Um, is it your personal opinion that like many or any of both just DeFi tokens, but more more generally governance, governance tokens in DeFi are likely to be classified as securities, at least in their current state. There is a fair bit of like decentralization theater in DeFi and not everyone takes their duties to decentralize particularly seriously. And there has been action brought by the SEC. Uh, I think Hester Pierce you know, referred to some of the cases as Dino, right? Decentralization in name only. Um, do you have like a broad picture view of the current governance token landscape? Because obviously, you know, as traders, the amount of DeFi tokens we got to trade and their crazy price movements uh, were an absolute gift. But it did obviously, given how quickly everything moved, raise questions about their um, status as a security or not. Is that, This is something you think about, I assume. Um, yeah, it is. It's something I think about a lot and something I've worked on a lot. I think... Um, so let me give you an answer about governance tokens, and then I want to say um, just a, a few quick things about uh, Chairman Gensler's speech. I think if you consider the entire market of governance tokens, a huge number of those governance tokens probably are securities, right? I mean, the main questions are, did the team sell the token? Uh and is the team carrying out managerial and entrepreneurial efforts, which holders of the token who purchased it from them are relying on in order to achieve profit? And did the team that sold the token make promises about those future efforts uh, that in order to uh, you know, promote the token as an investment opportunity? Um, I think those are the main questions. And I think there are, unfortunately, a lot of teams out there who saw the work that I think some of the um, more reputable players, uh, you know, 
took on in early last year. I don't want to talk specifically about, um, you know, Compounder or anyone else, but I think they sort of saw the model that many of us were working on and missed the point of what we were trying to do and just skipped all the way to the end, which was creating the token that conveys governance rights to, uh, to holders of the token. And I fear that when Chairman Gensler says, when I look at the top 100 assets on coin market cap, which is something that he says, he says, I'm not going to tell you that any particular one token is a security because each of them depends on their own facts and circumstances. But considering the lot of them, probably many of them are securities. And I think just being candid, it's, it's hard to disagree with that assessment. I think the question is how many assets are there that did achieve sufficient decentralization in the way that Bill Hinman described in 2018, which really was the driving force for most of what has happened uh, you know, in DeFi, especially leading up to DeFi summer with, with the development of, of these systems. And I think that is a very difficult question to answer. And it's one about which I think reasonable legal minds can differ. So it's, it's just really hard to say. Uh, sort of where that is is all going to come out. I think more broadly speaking, you know, you mentioned this question about lending platforms, which which Chairman Gensler uh, discussed in his remarks. Um, I actually, honestly, don't know what he's referring to, and I mean that genuinely. I think that his remarks were taken as being very hostile. A lot of people were really upset about it. They thought Chairman Gensler is out to destroy us. I didn't necessarily read it that way. I actually thought that um, to the extent that he uh, is focused on investor protection and some of the the sort of malfeasance in the space, um, I think that that's fairly appropriate. I think when he says we need to fit all of this within some kind of public policy framework, I get, that's absolutely right. It's very hard to disagree with that. I think that he didn't really have a whole lot of details to share. And so even when he says something like lending platforms, I don't know if he means BlockFi or those kinds of you know uh, centralized lenders, or if he means DeFi protocols, or if he means both. And I think that's just something that as time goes on, we're, we're going to have to work out. Because again, as, as we discussed before, the benefits and the risks in those two different types of systems are very different and call for very different treatment under the securities laws. So, I mean, definitely this is um, this is a big issue to watch, but but much too early to know how it's going to play out. Yeah, from, from kind of a trader's perspective, um, all that stuff takes so, so long, right? Like if we think back, even if it's like a blatant scam or like something that completely disregards anything, um, any laws, basically, if you think back BitConnect, right? That's kind of like, that took how many years to kind of play out and then actually like get pro to get prosecuted, right? It took forever. Um, so do you think like, what do you think would be the implications if like, let's say a DeFi protocol, like gets classified as a security. And do you think like, if that takes a long time, right, and there's enough space between okay, okay, them now being a security, and then like they transitioning, like those DeFi protocols transitioning to like not being securities, do you think it's gonna hit like basically the worst offenders? Or do you think like, basically, no one's gonna be like hurt at all? And it's just gonna like, 
we get new rules basically people or like protocols stop working the way they used to and then we kind of move on what do you think would be the implications if any any of that sort kind of happened i i wish i had a better sense of this so uh, let me let me speculate wildly about what i think might happen but i i've uh, i'll um, preface it by saying i really don't know and i don't envy the folks at the sec who have to you know figure out what the right strategy is because i think this is a very difficult challenge for them to tackle and your point is absolutely right Government investigations, generally speaking, take a very long time to unfold, particularly when the target of that investigation is well capitalized and motivated to fight. And this is something we're seeing with Ripple as a good example, right? I mean, the Ripple enforcement action didn't come until December of 2020. But then we found out that the SEC had started its, its investigation years ago, and a lot of the um, the, the facts in support of the SEC's case have to do with conduct that Ripple uh, carried out going back as far as I think 2013 and including you know tweets that Brad Garlinghouse was putting out and statements he was making on TV in 2017. And that case is still being litigated and we don't know what the outcome of that will be. So to imagine that the SEC is going to do the same thing with every single DeFi project knowing that even if they succeed, there is some a non-cartoon character out there who's just going to fork the protocol and launch it again with a new token with an extra letter on the end of it, right? I think that is, uh, practically speaking, a very hard challenge for, for the SEC to figure out. My hope is that two things will happen. One is the SEC will remain focused, as they have been, on overt frauds and people who are really trying to scam other people in the space. So right after, just as, as an example, right after Chairman Gensler's remarks uh, last week, uh, an enforcement action came down against DMM, DeFi money market. And a lot of people were, you know, their response to this was, oh no, the SEC is coming after DeFi now. But if you look into the facts of DeFi money market, it was literally a bunch of crooks who were lying about the protocol they had created. Literally, they said that the protocol was doing one thing and it simply was not doing that thing. They said they were investing in loans and no loans existed. It was just a fraud. And if you think about it, it was like a fraud designed to trick the least sophisticated people in the in the you know crypto markets, right? Like they couldn't even come up with a name for their protocol. They just called it DeFi money market, right? It's kind of like um, they're like you know forking Bitcoin and calling it like uh, cryptocurrency blockchain or something like that, right? So uh, to me, that's what the SEC is focused on and should be focused on are these these true fraudsters who are trying to fool other people and steal their money. The second thing I'm hoping will happen is the adoption of some kind of regulatory framework that actually works for governance tokens. I think here's the thing that people miss. I think almost every DeFi development company is happy to do disclosures. And that really is what the securities laws are designed to do, to close the information asymmetry between the issuer of an asset and the holder of that asset. And I think pretty much everyone is on the same page that disclosures are a good thing and we would be happy to see a securities framework under which 
the right information would be disclosed so that holders of these digital assets can understand the investment that they're making. The problem with the securities laws as they exist now is everyone who has to do disclosures has to become a full SEC reporting company, which is a preposterously expensive and difficult set of obligations to comply with. It also imposes a number of transfer restrictions on the assets themselves. Specifically, the assets can only trade on registered securities exchanges or alternative trading systems, which DeFi, uh, you know, decentralized exchange protocols are not. So the problem isn't so much that we're not happy to make disclosures. It's that the current set of requirements under the securities laws just don't make sense. So my hope is that what we can do is come up with a new regulatory framework like Commissioner Purse's safe harbor that satisfies, again, the objectives of the regulation, but respecting the unique nature of the technology that doesn't require some other elements of the traditional regulation. Yeah, that's an awesome answer and very much in line with I, with what I hoped uh, would be the case. Um, it does make sense, of course, to just focus on the overt frauds and almost give DeFi protocols the benefit of the doubt that, you know, there's an effort being made to decentralize. Um, but of course, you know, if you're an, it's, it still doesn't change the fact that it seems that if you're an American crypto user, still very much a lot of the time for self-censorship reasons from the point of view of those protocols, um, you have a bit of a rough experience, whether you want to leverage trade, whether you want to use DEXs, like we saw Uniswap, um, limit access via its front end to some products. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to the day where we get uh, a, a reasonable kind of practical 21st century crypto regulatory framework uh, for the United States. So many of my colleagues can punt on an equal level <laughs> that, you know, we Europeans still do to some extent. Um, I do want to quickly move on. I, I, you know, you've been very generous with your time already, Jake, but you know, maybe speed run this section to, to some point. Uh, talk about stable coins, right? Also very much in the uh, regulatory purview. Uh, one thing that I found interesting, this might be a good angle to start with, was again, Gensler, um, no shortage of crypto content from him. Uh, he said, and I think these were Aspen remarks, again, I could be wrong. This might have been in the letter to Elizabeth Warren, uh, but he said, uh, further, these stablecoins also may be securities and investment companies. To the extent they are, uh, we will apply the full investor protection of the Investment Company Act and the other federal securities laws to these products. Uh, it didn't obviously say which stablecoins he's talking about or the circumstances in which they would be become securities. Uh, do you have anything on your radar when it comes to stablecoins functioning as securities? Like, what would they need to do? And because I think the inf industry ramifications would be quite unfortunate if that were um, taken uh, quite broadly and applied. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he means all of them, to be honest. I know that sounds um, kind of dire, but I, right. I literally <laughs> think he means every stablecoin in existence now. I do not think that the legal analysis ultimately will support that view. But just to step back for a second, big picture, the reason why there's so much discussion about stable coins, um, we've, you know, there's a lot of different things that matter to regulators and policymakers in crypto, but there's really two things they genuinely care about and, and you know, two things that keep them up at night. One is 
illicit finance risk in crypto. In other words, uh, criminals and terrorists using this stuff to launder money or carry out terrorist attacks that they couldn't carry out if not for the existence of crypto. The second thing is monetary sovereignty, right? They are worried about their control of their fiat currencies. And particularly the US is worried about the status of the dollar as the global reserve currency, and also their ability to manage the money supply, which is becoming increasingly important as we go further and further down this path of modern monetary theory, where the government wants to print a whole lot of money, which only works if they have tight control over the money supply as a whole so that they can manage inflation. So when we in crypto you know, talk about how Bitcoin is going to take down the US dollar. Well, they don't think that at all, right? No one at the Fed or at the OCC or anywhere else in government is worried about Bitcoin as a threat to the dollar. They're worried about stable coins. They do not like the idea of the private sector creating financial assets that reflect the value of a dollar. That is a non-starter for them. So we see, you know, last year, things like the Stable Act proposed which says the only people who can create US dollar stable coins are chartered banks, right? Which means they would be fully regulated and subject to whatever the government tells them to do. And I think we're just seeing a continuation of those concerns, especially as stablecoin markets explode in popularity. So I think, um, you know, when Chairman Gensler says, um, you know, uh, Investment Company Act, He's referring to issuers of stable coins where the stable coins are backed by many different assets, some of which may be securities. And when you look at the attestations that get published, even by some of the centralized stable coin issuers, I think you could be concerned about that. When you look at the um, pool of assets backing DAI in Maker, I guess in theory you could be concerned about that. Again, I think when you dig into the legal analysis, th there are many reasons why these things do not match up. But um, it's just another message, I think, from one of the top financial regulators that stable coins are very much under the microscope. And to the extent that we're going to see more regulation coming down soon, I would not be surprised if stable coins are the next target. Yeah, it's always made sense to me to argue that, you know, if you want to play dollar games, be prepared to win dollar prizes. And, you know, those prizes aren't always um, particularly desirable. But, you know, it just makes sense from a policy point of view. Um, one other angle on stablecoins, which you've kind of touched on, is central bank digital currency. Uh, this could be a kind of cynical point, but do you think there's an argument that if the Fed opts to go down that path, uh, that will in turn come with additional onerous regulations for non-CBDC stablecoins to effectively regulate away the competition. It's kind of hard to see a world where that isn't the logical outcome of that. Is that a path that makes sense or is equally intuitive to you? Uh, I agree that if the Fed were to do a CBDC, that yes, they would then want much tighter control of the private sector. I think, look, everyone agrees, truly everyone agrees that one way or another, US dollars need to be digitized in a new kind of way, right? Not, I mean, we already have digital dollars, obviously very few of us transact in paper cash anymore, but everyone agrees that some kind of um, you know, digital ledger should be used for, for the issuance and, and transfer of dollars. It's just a question of what that's gonna be. And the different versions of this include only a CBDC and everything else is illegal, or 
a public-private partnership of some kind where the government is involved in the development of a U.S. dollar stable coin, but the development is done by the private sector, or some version of no government intervention directly, but regulations that serve as guidelines for how stablecoins can be privately issued and will have a vibrant competing market of different centralized and decentralized stablecoins. Obviously, that's the version of the world that I think is best and the one that I want to see. I think we should leverage our private sector here in the US. Um, that's that's what it's here for. That's what it's good at. But I think um, if the Fed were to decide, yeah, we're going to do a CBDC, they're not going to want competition from the private sector. I, I will say, though, I think that despite all of the talk, the likelihood of a CBDC in the US is exceedingly low. The idea that the Fed is going to build its own system, if, uh, you know, FedCoin, I, it just strikes me as something that could get talked about a lot, but is never actually going to happen. Um, but I, I just don't know. Again, these are, are tough questions and who knows how they'll play out. Do you think in general, like, because we talked about government issued coins, basically, um, do you think in general, like, there's a good chance that like um, stable coins are going to be kind of banned? Or do you think like, how would that look like? Like, let's say we, we get that a bunch of the stable coins or all of them kind of act as securities or hold securities or whatever. What do you think the, the market would look like? What do you like? How do they disappear? Do they disappear at all? Like, what's your view on that matter? And I know like that's completely, um, I mean, just basically making stuff up. But like, what do you think would be the most logical kind of way to go about it? Right. I also I hate to do the government's work for them and, you know, suggest how they can take down stable coins most effectively. But um, I, I'll give you at least a little bit of a sense of, I think, what might happen. So I think always you have to remember with regulation, regulations do not apply to technology. Regulations apply to people because technology can't respond to regulation. All regulation is carried out by people in terms of how they interact with technology or any other, you know, sort of regulated uh, subject. So what would happen is not necessarily that stable coins would be banned, but rather that US market participants would be either restricted or prohibited from interacting with stable coins. So the easiest uh, route, I think, for government to limit access to stable coins would be either to go after the issuers. So, you know, Circle is a US company, they're subject to US jurisdiction, so they could easily be regulated either lightly or heavily uh, as an issuer of stablecoins. Uh, it would be the markets where stablecoins trade. So if you think about all the U.S. exchanges and also all the U.S. custodians that are maybe holding stablecoins, you could see regulation there. In theory, you could also see regulation on the level of users, right? I mean, this, I think, is the most um, sort of overbroad and throwing the baby out with the bathwater type concept uh, where individual persons, right, as in me, as an individual, Jake Chervinsky, it would be illegal for me to interact with a stablecoin. I think where this gets very challenging for government, especially here in the U.S., is we have certain rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution that may protect our right to interact 
with certain types of financial instruments. So I think it would be much harder for the government to go that far, right, to restrict this type of activity on an individual basis than to just go to these big centralized players that are offering stable coins as a product or service to retail. I think that's probably where you see most regulation. And the last thing I'll say about this, sorry to, to go on and on here, but um, the... Um, the reality is, and I think regulators understand this, they will not be able to get rid of stable coins, right? The, the maker protocol exists. It's not going anywhere. It's simply not. And there's nothing that government can do about it. The most that they could do was try to push stable coins like DAI or some other stable coin uh, into a dark market into a black market, very much like the darknet markets are now, right? You, if you really want to, and you understand how to use Tor, and you know how to get to a darknet market, there's nothing really that the government can do to stop you from accessing them. They just make it as hard as possible. So the smallest amount of volume occurs in those unregulated black markets, and the smallest number of people have access to them as possible. And I think that is the worst case scenario, frankly, for all of DeFi, is that it just ends up looking like darknet markets where you know ordinary people can only transact through what looks very much like traditional finance. And it's only the people who are willing to go on the Silk Road who are you know getting access to to DeFi protocols, including decentralized stablecoins. I like that answer. In general, would you personally like say you have a lot of stable coins would you be worried at all like holding a lot of stable coins or do you think it's like a non-issue right now um hard to say i also i don't want to say like oh don't worry about it and then something blows up and everyone loses all their money so i'm sort of hesitant on that front um look i think uh i think that government does not want people to lose money the goal of this is in good faith. It is to protect uh, consumers from risks that they do not fully understand. And a lot of the discussion about stablecoin regulation comes from what happened with Tether, where Tether said, all tethers are fully backed by dollars. And then they said, actually, we lost $800 million and tethers are not actually backed by dollars and hopefully we'll make the money back. But if we don't, sorry, you know, everyone is screwed. And so I think that if we see regulation, it is unlikely that that regulation will be harmful to holders of stable coins, um, at least at the time that the regulation comes down. And just as one example to sort of reinforce the point, a, a few weeks ago, we saw a bunch of different US states uh, send cease and desist orders to BlockFi. Uh, alleging that BlockFi's interest accounts were unregistered securities. But as part of those cease and desist orders, the uh, state regulators said BlockFi can and should continue to service the interest accounts that they're already offering to customers. Just don't offer any new accounts to any new customers. And the idea there, again, is the regulators are not trying to screw over BlockFi customers. They want those customers to be made whole. They're just trying to get a better sense of what's going on behind the scenes. So those retail investors or consumers are not exposed to risks that they don't understand. That's an awesome answer and one that makes a lot of sense. 
I do want to circle back just to the final question here, uh, given where we started. And again, it's been awesome to catch up, Jake. I think this would be a good point to um, bring it all together. What does effective lobbying or advocacy look like in your eyes when it comes to the crypto space? I saw you had a bit of a debate with Gabriel on Twitter. Uh, kind of anecdotally, Coin Center to me seems super underfunded relative to what it does and the size of our industry. Um, that whole, you know, it's something we take for granted until it really starts to matter. So while it's in the public consciousness, um, what do you want to say to our audience about crypto advocacy and your kind of vision for it and maybe how people can even support it? Right. Um, well, and thanks for for bringing that up. And Gabe and I, it's it's so funny. I think everyone assumes that we like hate each other because mostly we just argue on Twitter, but we're actually pretty good friends and I respect him a lot. Um, so yeah, just, I guess, a few thoughts about this. Um, first of all, I think we are all still learning what effective advocacy and what effective lobbying looks like for crypto. I think this whole infrastructure bill fight has been a real galvanizing moment for us to figure out how do we professionalize our operation here? What are we what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What are we not doing yet that we need to do? I think that um, one of the most important things and this is just sort of how Washington, D.C. works, whether you like it or not, and you don't have to like it. And I, frankly, don't love it at all. Um, it's called a swamp for a reason. The way that D.C. works is you have to make relationships with people in positions of authority. And that requires being on the ground and having conversations in what may sound like a back room. But that is how these things get done. So part of what we need to do more of is have folks here on the ground who are willing to have conversations with as many policymakers as possible. And there are truly thousands of them who are relevant, who we need to talk to, who we are not yet talking to. And that's, you know, 100 senators, 435 House representatives, and any number of uh, officials within the executive branch. We need to have conversations with them and we need to do it with a unified message. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to subscribe to my vision for what DeFi should look like. What it means is if we go to policymakers saying different things, then what is likely to happen is they're gonna say, Industry does not have its act together. These people do not know what they're doing until they get their house in order. We're just going to go do whatever the Treasury Department tells us to do because the Treasury Department, those are folks we can trust and those are folks we're going to be working with. And those are, are the ones who are going to implement the laws in the end uh, anyway. So I think what we have to do is we have to figure out together what is the message that we want to drive? What kind of policy outcomes do we want to achieve? And then once we've done that, we can all go our separate ways and attack those issues in whatever way we care about the most. And I think you know it's, it's really important to say that I do not think that every person who cares about uh, crypto policy and advocacy needs to come to Washington, DC and put on a suit and tie and play DC games, right? I understand that is not something that a lot of people wanna do. And especially in crypto, right? A lot of people come to this industry explicitly because they do not want to ask the government for permission. They want to build technology that does not require permission. So I get that. 
Um, my only point is we still can coordinate on what the messaging is and let me do the dirty work of being here in the swamp, right? I, I, I'm not saying I love it, but it is my background and it's what I've been trained to do. And I feel like it is the purpose that I can serve. And there are many others here who are willing to serve that purpose. And everyone else can attack these same questions and try to achieve the same objectives that we all are coordinating on in their own way uh, however they find most appealing and most effective. So that's sort of my message, right? Let's all be unified and then let's do the things that we'd love to do the most and let's build this thing together. Jake, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to catch up with you. I'm sure our audience will very much appreciate all those insights. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. I think that's all from us, at least for this episode. We'd love to have you back uh, as the regulatory landscape continues to change. Uh, but thanks again for talking to us. That's all from us at Technical Roundup, brought to you by FTX. We will see you next week. Gentlemen, thank you again for your time. Thank you. This was fun.